Imagine receiving a message that you're going to die. In Death with Interruptions, the notice arrives in a lavender envelope. In The Immortalist, it comes by way of prediction. Consider yourself being notified. Now what? Hi, I'm Karen Martineau, founder of Bevival.com, and welcome back to the Long Before the End podcast series. In this series, we're examining our relationship with mortality by exposing how death, the protagonist, is portrayed in classic and contemporary literature. My hope is that these discussions will bring insight to your life as well as inspire your end-of-life narrative. Hi, I'm Jed Beitler. And I'm Michael Hamilton. We're your hosts for the Long Before the End podcast series. In our first podcast, we discussed the book Death with Interruptions. And here I have to make an apology. As a fan of British football, or soccer as we know it in the States, I'm very familiar with the coach of Manchester United, a Portuguese gentleman by the name of Jose Mourinho. And it is therefore I should have known that our author's name would be pronounced Jose Saramago and not Jose Saramago, as he's also Portuguese. Well put. Last time we talked about immortality. So we thought to follow up with a book that examines mortality. What leads us into a relationship with mortality? Is it the big 5-0 or, or 6-0? Uh, maybe we're trying to stretch a single into a double during the summer softball game where you wrench your back and you have to be helped off the field. Yeah, and it's the hip replacement that follows. <laughs> right, the hip replacement, the knee replacement, the elbow replacement. It seems unending. Or it's maybe the birth of your grandchildren or finally getting around to doing your will. How we shape our own destiny is really the overarching context of our podcast. And in this episode, we're going to focus on the book, The Immortalists. And the title itself is a bit of a writer's conceit. It's a literary device. She uses a metaphor that teases the readers into looking for deeper meaning, when in fact it's not about immortality, but rather mortality. In this book, we meet four siblings, the Golds. These are kids ranging in age from 7 to 13 on the edge of self-awareness. They live in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. They go to a fortune teller on Hester Street where each is told his or her fate, the date of their death. And we follow them as they live their lives with that knowledge. So the book poses two questions, basically. If someone could tell you when you're going to die, would you want to know? And if you did know, would you live your life any differently? We spoke to a psychiatrist and a Roman epomist. They both shared a couple qualities that I had no idea existed, and that is there's this aspect of psychology, and it's married with an art form as well. The book starts off in 1969. We were part of that generation that authored change that initiated some of the great cultural shifts of, of that era. Both John Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, they were gone by then. Yep. You had Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, they were doing the first moonwalk. You had The Who and Pinball Wizard coming out. Actually. I was thinking more like Jimi Hendrix, Bob Dylan, Crosby, Stills and Nash, 
Well, I guess it shows you where your your musical tendencies are versus Absolutely. mine. It just, it just shows you a distinction in taste. <laughs> uh, also, you have Stanley Kubrick releasing 2001 A Space Odyssey. The Smithsonian is celebrating the 50th anniversary. Those questions still remain. You know, what's the storyteller's message? What does the future look like and what does it all mean? So, look, it was a time of rebellion, old versus new, the past versus the future, basically a generational struggle that played out in the lives of our characters. So let's talk about that book, um, The Immortalists. It's comprised of four short stories, each named after one of the siblings who is ultimately bound together by the current events as well as the cultural history and their potential fate. We were really wrestling with how much we go into this. There's so much that the more we talk about it, the more we're revealing the book, the, the less likely you're going to want to read it. And we want you all to read this. Um, so we, you know, we had to be really careful with this. And being careful, by the way, one other thing, uh, it's a cautionary note to the readers. Um, this was a time of sexual freedom, of the Stonewall riots and Greenwich Village, which also took place in, in 1969. And um, there are some very graphic descriptions that accompany uh, one of the siblings coming of age. So um, it's an incredible read. It's well worth it. This book is so filled with symbologies. Um, you've got the parents, for example. This is representing tradition. This is a, a family, a Jewish family, that is living in the Lower East Side of Manhattan in the 60s. So they're observant Jews, and that whole religious uh, aspect, the sense of, of obligation, the tradition that, that they bring to the, the storyline is uh, contrasted by the children who you know, represent exploration, invention, search for their personal identity and, and rebellion. And, you know, again, 1969, when this starts, is all about rebellion. It's the marches against the Vietnam War. It's breaking away from our own planet to, to walk on the moon. The prediction of the dates of each of their deaths sets the story in motion, the paths that the siblings are going to travel. And a question that arises for me is, how are we influenced by environmental and cultural experiences as well as our DNA? Yeah, you and I both had both fond as well as some tragic memories that we were able to set in our own contexts that made this book really resonate for us. Me personally, I was really amazed at how so young an author could capture the essence of both that time and, and those areas. So Tony Bushbaum, who's a writer critic for the Huffington Post, summed up The Immortalist best when he said, this book is more than an examination of how to live. It's about how for our own reasons to cram more life into our lives for as long as we have them. The question that arises for me is, am I going to take responsibility for my life, meaning living life fully, accepting my mortality long before the end? Or am I going to abdicate my fate to others? The big theme about this book is mortality. And, and you know, you look at mortality as something that um, most people don't think about. And it's unless something pokes you or unless something nudges at you, um, whether it's an introduction um, that is brought on by celebration or an introduction that's brought on by tragedy. How do you respond, whatever it is, when you start getting in touch with, with mortality and there's an issue? I mean, do you stick your head in the sand? Uh, or do you push it off for another day? Or actually take the responsibility and act on it? Yeah. And if you act on it, you act in a number of ways. You act in 
based on people's personalities of it's fate. It's, you know, it's in God's hands. It's in someone else's hands. Someone else is going to control my acceptance of this. Right. Or well, it's, who, or do you, it's, who do you believe? Right. Or who it's, I'm be- not going to accept this. I'm going to be the self-determinant in this, in this whole thing. Right. So, so who do you believe? What are you willing to believe? I mean, it's really a, a quandary, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And is it, you know, do you believe the spiritual side of it or do you believe the science side of it? Right. Oh, uh, right. And when you say spiritual, is it either a minister or it could be tarot cards? Yeah. Yeah. But again, it's, you know, whichever whichever source of that nudge or that that poking that brought you out of your um, uh, your shell, your shell, your naivete about mortality, whatever, you know, you have the two ways of embracing it. You either decide I'm going to take the bull by the horns, my the self determination, or I'm going to leave it to somebody else. It's in someone else's hands. Right, and I, and and the the key the key element that I distill out of this is. Whatever you do is going to impact you the rest of your life. Yeah, well, one way or another, we're, we're either following or we're driving at those different moments in our lives. But before we can even alter how we think about mortality, we have to understand why we think about what we think. This leads us into a conversation with a psychiatrist, Dr. Ed Latimer. Thanks for joining our discussion, Dr. Latimer. The Immortalist is about mortality and the influences that drive us toward it or away from it. And as a practitioner, I'm sure you've seen it all. So let's talk about the power of suggestion, how it influences behavior, how it influences one's beliefs. So are people biologically or culturally predisposed to suggestion or influence? That's a very good question, and thank you for having me here today. I don't know that it's one or the other. I think individuals can actually have both aspects of that question occurring simultaneously or independently at different times in their lives. My belief is that just as in, you know, if you were to reflect on a lot of the information coming out today with regard to, like, gender identity and roles between men and women, I think we're having a pretty strong appreciation that human beings are largely influenced by influence of outside of themselves, the way that uh, society would impart or impose uh, roles that they should follow. So I think that more so than not, it's probably more uh, a factor of outside influences. We are, in many regards, basically animals. And as animals, we tend to follow herds when given an opportunity to do so. But uh, as complex animals, I think we do have free will, and we can make decision points in our lives that uh, don't necessarily lead us one way or the other. So let me, let me that being quick, said, let me ask yes, a quick question. Are, is there a kind of person that is more susceptible to external stimuli than others? I guess the way to ask that question is, are there personality types that are more inclined to be uh, influenced than others? And I say, yeah, the answer is probably yes. Sometimes you get folks who are highly... Uh, systematized and obsessive, and they will follow directions to an obsessive T. But I believe that most of the outside influence that occurs with human beings is probably more at an unconscious level than it is a conscious level. Is there a difference between the conversation that might take place over a short-term illness or a a path to recovery from uh, a chronic disease versus something that touches on a person's mortality? 
Issues of mortality come up in the office actually relatively frequently. And what I try to do is I try to open the door without necessarily mentioning the topic. Because invariably, human beings who are confronted with information, medical information, that their lives may, you know, um, they may, may not have a lot of life left, uh, they have a lot of curiosity but a lot of fear. And uh, by opening the door, sometimes you get folks to have free conversations about what their curiosities are and what their, you know, more detailed questions about what it is to be an individual with a, you know, dated lifespan. Are individuals looking for resolution or explanation or an interpretation? Most of the time in the office, I think they're looking for reassurance. And they're looking to uh, have a better understanding of what others may be thinking about what it is that they're going through. It's very scared and very lonely to have something that you think you can't share and freely talk about with others. Um, mortality is a very complex matter in the office. It seemingly, it seems linear, you know, it's point A to point B, but there's a lot of emotions that go on uh, that may emerge during the course of conversations uh, that uh, I know I'm being a little bit overexpansive and forgive me, but uh, sometimes the uh, conversations are strained, sometimes they're open and they're, you know, easy dialogue. It depends on the individual, and sometimes a conversation from two or three weeks earlier comes back, and then a request for more information is provided at a later time. Do you bring faith or God or any kind of spirituality into those conversations as well? Well, it's a good question. Uh, first and foremost, uh, you know, I also have to respect people's boundaries, and patients have a right to address you know, issues when they're ready to. So it's always a matter of timing and intensity. It's kind of an art when you kind of think about how much you delve and how much energy is, you know, given to the process of something that is very a very serious issue like mortality. And then Jed asked the bigger question, the one that mattered most to me. The one about whether death literacy really mattered. Dr. Latimer, if we embraced our mortality from an earlier age, as a society, would we be better off? I think we would be. Several uh, weeks ago, I had uh, an opportunity to march in Washington on behalf of the kids that were murdered at uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas uh, High School. And my wife and I found ourselves amidst many of the students that they're actually there the day that this uh, occurred. And we were aware that they were actively grieving as they were actively protesting. Those kids had a very shocking, sudden awareness of their mortality. When kids are exposed to the topic of mortality, they're going to have to be of a certain age and a certain maturity in order to absorb the topic. Wow, that was really amazing. I yeah. learned a whole lot more than I thought I was going to learn. Absolutely. One of the things that I found really interesting, because he made a distinction halfway through uh, our conversation, was he talked about science, but he also talked about the art form yeah, yeah. Of, of, of psychoanalysis, of knowing when to do what. I love the fact that we were, we were talking before about you know, the nudge or the, or the poke about mortality. We're all subject to influence from outside sources. Right. That, that focus on the power of influence the power of suggestion, 
I asked that question because I wanted to understand what his perspective would be uh, when the gold children got their respective fortunes told by the, uh, the Romany fortune teller. And what he said was how susceptible children are at that age. And it really cemented maybe it's the research that Chloe Benjamin did so that there was a reality based in the fiction. Well, and, and I really thought it was impactful. Uh, he and his wife having participated in the marches in Washington and being there with kids who are having to simultaneously grieve and express anger. I think that's well put. It's, it's a way of maybe easing oneself into an understanding of death literacy. We talked with a scientist, a psychiatrist, about the power of suggestion and influence, so we wanted to get another perspective from someone who practices the more spiritualistic side of this conversation. Neil Tobin is an entertainer whose performances include palm reading, prediction, magic. Hello, Neil. So glad you can join us. Help clarify or validate what happened in The Immortalists. A Romany fortune teller tells each sibling their fate. And, and I know you've studied and performed Romany palmistry. Can palm readers actually predict the future? Well, first, I, I just want to emphasize that this is a book. It is a work of fiction. Uh, but I believe that the author does an excellent job of balancing the real and the fantasy elements. I mean, predicting the day that someone's going to die isn't actually something that an ethical reader in the real world would do. But the author clearly did her homework and got many of the details about this sort of reading correct. Yeah, Neil, we were, we were uh, as we talked with a psychiatrist earlier, we were talking about what are the cues in one's life that kind of wakes them up to their own sense of mortality. Um, it might be uh, a visit to a physician's office where in the course of an exam, you're given some news, bad news or good news. But in some cases, it might be you're happen to be work, walking on the boardwalk and decide to go get a palm reading or a tarot and there's some portent of the future. Oh, well, because life is a complicated and chaotic place. And so we all have questions from time to time. So some of us will go to a, a priest or a rabbi, or some of us will go to a therapist. Uh, and for some people, a reader is a more accessible person to speak with. Uh, I mean, certainly in the context of this book, you've got a bunch of children who would, you know, probably not want to go speak to a clergyman who probably knows their parents uh, and probably probably doesn't have access to someone who works in a clinical setting. Uh, but here's this person with a sign on the door. But it's funny because I, I know that the inclination when one goes to uh, a fortune teller or a reader, uh, the inclination is, oh, well, this is somebody who is trying to influence you. This is, this is a very negative thing. Whereas when you go to any of these sorts of advisors, uh, whichever shape we're talking about, you're going there with questions and looking for some sort of guidance. You want to be influenced. You want to be pushed in a positive direction. What a good palmist can do is extrapolate. Uh, there are lines on one's hand that actually can be found to correlate to specific character traits. And believe me, when I first started learning the systems, I thought there was no way that could possibly hold any water at all. But then I found out that over the course of, of lengthy period of time in the Middle Ages, there were a lot of palmists who were compiling a lot of 
information about hands and correlating them to a lot of information about character traits. And they, they created huge data sets. And what they basically got out of that is really a soft science. It's a system of averages. And it's like any system of averages. Uh, there are outliers, but in general, it's more correct than it's not. They predicted, so, they had algorithms before Facebook and Google. <laughs> yeah, amazingly, there were people before that. And what was, what's interesting about that is so that we could look at uh, specific lines on the hand. And, well, for instance, there's, there's a line on the hand that talks, uh, it's, it's called the heart line. And when people have questions about relationships, that's the line we look at because that's the line that indicates and it often correlates to how open one is to uh, communicating their emotions, giving and receiving love, being communicative to loved ones in their lives. And naturally, if somebody has issues with connecting with loved ones, part of that, a large part of that, is inability to communicate feelings. Neil, you advertise yourself as an entertainer, but you also talk about yourself as being a necromancer. Um, if you're a fan of sci-fi movies, that's kind of be a, a weird connotation. Can you can you explain that? Within the science fiction and fantasy community, necromancer has uh, taken on uh, the shades of someone who can raise the dead and you know command an army of skeletons. Or, or the chronicles of Riddick, yeah. <laughs> sure, all that. So. Uh, but, you know, you understand that that's a, that's a very recent construction. <laughs> okay. I mean, as a genre, it, it, it hasn't even been around all that long. Uh, but And there are other shapes to the word, too. Uh, to those who are biblical scholars, necromancer was used, you know, to mean someone who can speak with the spirits of the departed for the purposes of forecasting the future. Uh, but over the centuries, the definition has been expanded to include someone with any variety of magical or psychic gifts. Uh, in my own introductions to performance work, uh, I will often rattle off that uh, uh, it can mean telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, telekinesis, divination, spirit mediumship, and mental influence. So when I say that I'm Neil Tobin Necromancer, that means that it's my job to make your evening as strange as humanly possible. <laughs> I want to... I change topics real quickly and, and unpack the notion, let's say, mystery behind prediction, how professionals like yourself actually influence. Sure, sure. Uh, well, well, first of all, a, a lot of people think that, you know, magic is all sleight of hand and mentalism is, you know, all, all, all kinds of stuff that looks like mind reading and might actually be mind reading and that all of it is psychology as a performance art. Wow. Psychology as a performance art. Right now, people in the neuroscience field are studying magicians because we have practical knowledge of how people's brains process information that perhaps hasn't been tested uh, in clinical settings yet, but has been passed down from performer to performer. As both an entertainer, but also, you know, as this psychologists, so to speak, you know, or, or possessing these psychologic skills. Do you think having access to one's date is a good idea? That's just a horrible, horrible thing. And I, I, I hate the, the even idea of it in a, in a real life setting, but it, it's certainly powerful in the case of the book. Now, do I think that the knowledge 
that your life might be short could be beneficial to you. Uh, if we're not talking about kids, but just talking in the abstract, I think that regardless of how long your line is, all of our lives are too short. We live with a misconception there's time to sort it all out before the end. That's a game we play in our heads, a way to cope with uncertainty. The more knowledge we gain, the more comfortable we become with uncertainty. Do something now and begin your journey towards death literacy. So, okay, so if someone could actually tell you when you were going to die, would you want to know? And, and if you did know, would that change how you led your life? Seneca, who was a Roman philosopher and statesman in the first century AD, said, we're not given a short life, but we make it short. Life is long if you know how to use it. For a population that excels at living well, we fall short when it comes to dying well. And this is why death literacy has become so important why I founded Bevival.com. Preparing for death is no different than planning any other life cycle event. I know it seems counterintuitive to embrace our end, but when you do, every minute of living gets colored in meaning. So what exactly is death literacy? It's about organizing our future. It's about learning and doing what is needed for end of life long before end of life arrives. Death literacy is an acquired and desirable skill, no different than learning how to read, drive, cook, hold a newborn, or do financial planning. It's about envisioning death and empowering your loved ones with that knowledge. We hope we've piqued your interest in this book. If you're in Chicago, go see Neil Tobin's Near Death Experience. To find out more, go to the website neardeathx.com. That's neardeath, the letter X, dot com. Send us your thoughts and questions. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is longbeforetheend at gmail.com. That's one word, longbeforetheend. And tell us what you're reading. To learn more about death literacy, visit bevival.com. <laughs>